0: This is that time in our service when we give our attention to the words of God as they get preached to us, trusting that the Father can use this to affect change in your heart and your mind, and therefore in your home and your life, and therefore in your world and in these cities. Uh, I'm going to be putting a lot of scripture up on the screen here as my words conform to the meaning And the intent and the truth of those scriptures, Uh, may Jesus visit you in his grace this morning as we do this. All right, just as way of introduction, reminder, here's what we're doing together here. And we're at the back end of our first year of having sent out a church plant to Wakefield and then a church plant to Malden and figuring life out as Melrose, Seven Mile Road. Here's one way of phrasing what we're getting at. We are planting the gospel. And pleading with the Lord to grow a church. Our primary activity is the planting of the gospel. Not the planting of a church per se. That surrounds and follows and emerges from the planting of the gospel. For me, especially in my role with you, I can easily fade to the second line there. And think, okay, if we can just craft perfectly faithful sermons and sing theologically solid songs and kill it with children and youth ministry and call leaders well and train them and pick the perfect sign to put over here on the Lindfels Parkway that will just magnetically attract people. And if we build the perfect church, then we will be fulfilling our mission. To focus there is to focus in the wrong place. We are called to what we're actually doing together is what's in red up here. We are planting the gospel, preaching it to ourselves, preaching it from this pulpit, preaching it in our smaller communities, loving it, believing in it, resting in it, exploring it, considering it, meditating on it, learning it, loving it, believing it. From that activity, we're pleading with Jesus to be gracious to us and to grow a beautiful, faithful, and fruitful church. Okay, now there are a lot of possible responses when a group like us gets to uh, about the work of planting the gospel. Let me plot a little continuum up here for you. So on one extreme is that often you will plant the gospel and the gospel will be flatly rejected. I don't need to get into that. If you've been living a gospel life in the greater Boston area, you know what that looks like and sounds like and smells like. On the opposite end of that continuum is sometimes someone hears the gospel and they are what we call thoroughly converted. That's what we're going for. That's where the Spirit attends the declaring of the gospel with effectual grace and boom, there is new birth experienced and there are new affections and new motives and new language and new eyes and new life is given Because of the gospel, this is what we are pleading with the Father to do over and over and over again with those we have not met, but also with us and our children, that we would respond to the planting of the gospel and become thoroughly converted people. Okay, now there is other responses on this continuum. We're just going to focus on one today, that's where our text takes us, and this one honestly, totally caught me off guard when I began planting the gospel and watching a church grow up around the planting of the gospel. Seeing this happen in real time has broken my heart. I've probably cried as many tears over this as anything else in in planting a church. It's confused me. I've been flummoxed. I've wrestled with God over this. And that is sometimes the gospel is heard and Christ is what we call falsely professed. He's professed, but, but not for real and not for long. Okay, quick analytical question. Of all of the people that we have baptized in the history of Seven Mile Road, how many of them are still confessing, following, loving, obeying Jesus? So I'm a math guy, right? The answer is around 70%. So that means that three out of ten people who have been baptized here, and that means there was some point where they were saying, I'm all in. I'm all in on Jesus. I believe. I'll get baptized in front of a group of people. I'll give my testimony to His grace. I want to follow Jesus. Three out of ten of them are not walking with Jesus right now, today. Why does that happen? What is that? Okay, that's what the text is going to help us with today. It's going to show us that sometimes we say yes to the gospel, not out of deep-seated repentance, but from superficial self-interest. Not deep-seated repentance, but superficial self-interest. I was told this week that our content in this church is very heavy. That we preached on persecution and then abortion and then, what was it last week? It was very heavy. No, that persecution was last week. Racism. I think that's because life is heavy and the Word of God is heavy. And so, how do you not preach heavy? So, let's do heavy. Let's pray. Father, it's so crucial that we understand what a false profession looks like, so that we can avoid it in our own lives, so that we can love our children as they are coming to to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, so that we can disciple these Bostonians that we so love and you so sent us to really well. Uh, I pray that you would speak compellingly and clearly through your word this morning and visit us. We love you. And I thank you that you know how heavy our lives are and how deep our sin runs. And so, your word does not play around with us, but it invites us into eternal life. So I pray that we take hold of it together today. Amen. Okay, Um, here's our context for the words that we're going to learn through today. Most of the Christians who are a part of the very first gospel community in the city of Jerusalem got chased out of the city at risk of imprisonment or their lives. They were persecuted. That's what we talked about last week. Some of them ran to the South Shore. How many other people would never run to the South Shore? Is it just me and Chris? I would go to England, like on a raft if I had to, then be exiled on the South Shore. Okay, some of them went to the North Shore. That's what I'm talking about. And on the North Shore was a place called Samaria, The Samaritans who lived on the North Shore were a mixed breed of Jewish people. They had Jewish blood, and they also had, we'll call it pagan blood. That's where this race had come from. And so among other things they were mixed up with was not just their blood, but their religion. They were syncretists, uh, theologically and spiritually. So picture if I was wearing construction boots, skinny jeans. You can just picture that in your head because it ain't never going to happen in real life. Like a tuxedo shirt with a bow tie and then a cowboy hat. That's a mess right there, right? That is what these people were like spiritually when it came to the topic of God, theologically. Because of the pagan side that was thrown in there, they were very susceptible to superstition and flashy works of magical power, And hocus-pocus kind of religious stuff, sorcery, that kind of thing was a part of easily the worship in that area. And so it's no surprise that in that environment on the North Shore, in steps a man named Simon. And here's what the scripture said. It said, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great okay so we'll call him simon the self-promoting sorcerer when you hear magic or sorcery in this text uh, we mean that there was like this trade or this guild of professional uh, magicians they had knowledge of the black arts they were astrologers but they were also chemists they did incantations potions Uh, They tapped into like what we would call a new agey kind of thing, sleight of hand. They were seen not just to be magicians, but to have a pathway to God or the gods, the spirits. And so there was this divine magic-working sorcery kind of thing going on. Think of Houdini and Deepak Chopra, if those were somehow meshed into one kind of person. Magic and smoke and mirrors and New Age voodoo spiritual stuff. That's who Simon was. But not just Houdini and Deepak Chopra. You have to add to it Saul Goodman. Do you know who that is? Better call Saul from Breaking Bad. He was an ambulance-chasing, self-promoting, sleazy, greasy-haired lawyer. Deepak Chopra plus Houdini plus Saul Goodman, that's Simon. He not only knew how to work his sorcery, but he knew how to promote himself. So just picture this in Samaria. The biggest billboards, you know, they do them the vertical way now. A big picture of Simon, the magician. He's on every single talk show that's dealing with sorcery and magic. His books are hardcover at Costco. When you Google Simon or sorcery, he's purchased that first ad. He is known because he is positioning himself as a demigod. He was telling everyone how great that he was. So feel this. He had turned his abilities with conjuring up spiritual signs and wonders, and he had moved it for his own self-interest. And he became a wealthy, influential, well-known Samaritan demigod. The people loved him there. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And that word great is the same translation as the word magic in here. So like he had this nickname of magic man. That's who Simon was. He is divine. He owned the town. In from Jerusalem, comes Philip. Philip is filled with the spirit of Jesus. Philip is preaching the gospel of Jesus, and Jesus is attending the preaching of that gospel with what? Signs and wonders. We're going to do a whole sermon on signs and wonders in the book of Acts, but these signs and wonders that were Philip was doing, they made Simon's signs and wonders look like an episode of Sid the Science Kid just like totally second rate. Philip was bringing a different kind of spiritual power to Samaria. And it wasn't just about the signs and the wonders. The signs and the wonders were testifying to the truth of the message which people were receiving with faith, saying yes to the gospel, new life, new birth. Many people were becoming what we call thoroughly converted, okay? I love the way that this reads It says, when they believed Philip as he preached gospel about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I love this. Who does the Christian preacher promote? Do they talk about themselves being somebody great? His gospel was all about God and His servant, Jesus Christ. The Spirit attends that preaching with saving grace Many Samaritans believe and are baptized. And now here comes the first surprise in our text, including who? Who was one of the crowd who believed and was baptized? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Whoa. Did anybody see this coming in the reading of the text? This is so interesting. Simon walked away from the magical religion thing he was into to become a disciple of Jesus? That would be wicked awesome. If It was legit. Now there's already some clues in the text here that it it may be or it may not be. Simon is the only name in this passage where his believing is not connected to the object of the gospel. It's just Simon believed. They believed the gospel about God and Jesus Christ. He believed something. And the language that is used down here is not the typical language that we read in the rest of the New Testament about what discipleship looks like. Discipleship is usually about you giving up everything about your life and planting Jesus at the center of a new life and following Him personally. He's at the center of your life. You are overcome by Jesus' beauty and Jesus' grace and Jesus' power and Jesus' love and Jesus' life. You're amazed that God has loved you in your sin and invited you into his good graces. That's what amazes you. But Simon is amazed at what? He's amazed at the show. He's amazed at the spectacle. He's amazed at the signs and the great miracles. This happens with little kids, right? You use your finger to point to something amazing and what does the two-year-old look at? They're looking at your finger. And you're like, no, 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 there. And they're going, whoa, look at that finger. Simon is, is looking at the signs and the miracles, but we're not sure if he's moved past those to the reality here. Um, and so you read this and you're not sure right away, is this guy a disciple of Jesus or is he, is he a groupie of Philip? Is he blown away by the gospel or is he blown away by the superpowers attached to the gospel? That's his thing. This is a little bit scary. Where is Simon's self-interest? What is Simon all about? What has been the success and the happiness and the moneymaker in his life? Signs of religious superpowers, the ability to do magic, Has he come to the gospel for Jesus' sake, or has he come to the gospel for the sake of what Jesus can do for his already established life? You should be asking yourself that question when you read these words. All right, so the apostles in Jerusalem get word that the Holy Spirit, the gospel, is being received and believed in Samaria. So they hustle downhill to check it out. I won't put this up here, but the text said that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, the apostles, who came down the hill and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, that's a different sermon we may do Uh, But that is not a distinct second blessing of the Spirit. In this story, God is wanting to make it crystal clear for them and for us and for everyone that these half-breed Samaritans were just as welcomed into the kingdom of God as the Jewish Jerusalem full-breed believers. And so he waits until the apostles are there to verify to affirm, to leave no doubt that the same Spirit that was poured out on the Jews is being poured out on the Samaritans. This is one gospel for everyone. So this is a scene of verification of salvation, verification of adoption, verification of acceptance into the family of God. That's what this scene is. And then we read these words. This one. Then the apostles laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, now in the text, Luke didn't tell us again specifically what the supernatural signs and wonders that attested the pouring out of the Spirit were. He's already told us that once. The first time that this went down, it was wild hurricane force winds out of nowhere. Screaming loud, gales, toupees are just like flying everywhere. Stuff is being kicked up like a train just rushed by. Tongues of fireplace fire appearing. It was like Cirque du Soleil on steroids. It was wild in that upper room. That's the grace of the Father attesting to the reality and the truth of the gospel as he promised to Joel, incredible foundational era establishing signs and wonders. It happens three or four times in the book of Acts. And then we read these words. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me This superpower also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So now it comes out, doesn't it? Simon was never there for God and his glory, but for Simon and his magical superpower, self-interest. This whole confessing of Christ and being baptized and following Philip was done with an eye to advancing the thing that he was already about. Notice that Simon does not receive the Spirit and when he sees the Spirit being poured out, he doesn't say, I want the Spirit. I need the Spirit of Jesus. What does he say? I want to be a dispenser of the spirit whatever that magic trick was right there with their hands that that magic trick with their hands right there that's what i'm talking about give me some of that has simon moved from magic to gospel he's just looking for the gospel to augment or to improve or to better his magic life. Another way to say that is to say it like this. He's not yet moved from Simon to Jesus. Simon is still at the center of this whole pursuit. Okay, Peter sees this and he drops some heavy words. Heavy. How else can you preach it, right? Let's read these words. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That's actually a very tame translation. The way that it reads literally would be something like this, to hell with you and your money. To hell with you and your money. This is a, a, a curse. In other words, he's looking and saying, Simon, you self-promoting sorcerer, how could you ever say such a thing? It shows that what you just said is totally out of accord with the kind of language that a thoroughly converted disciple of Jesus would ever speak. Why are these words so horrible? Uh, For one thing, this power is restricted to the capital A apostles, but Simon wants to be one. He is still self-promoting. Hey, I want apostolic status. Secondly, Simon's asking for the power to bestow the Holy Spirit on anyone. Did you see that in there? Give me this magic power and I can do it to anybody, the crowds, all of them. He doesn't care about faith, repentance, obedience. He's a marketer. He sees this as a commodity. He he sees this as the chance for the best grand finale to the new show that he's working on. Boom, wind and tongues of fire and and the spirit's going to fall. Imagine who I could become if I could work that kind of magic. Imagine my show in Vegas if I could do that. And then third, and please don't miss this one, by viewing the gift of the Spirit like it's a commodity to be bought and sold and practiced at His whim with the right chops of His hands, Simon is showing that he still does not get gospel grace. He does not understand grace. Magic is just like religion. What is religion? Religion is you manipulating God with the right words and the right works and the right actions. And you push the right buttons and you quote the right incantations and you come to the right place at the right time wearing the right clothes and you rub the right beads and you pray the right prayers You mix it all together, and then God does what you want. This is all that Simon knew. This was his whole entire life. The gospel is this whole other category. This is God, free and sovereign in his grace. Unearned, unprovoked, undeserved, unmanipulated. You can't buy gospel grace. It's not in your hands or anyone else's hands. You can't say the right incantation and conjure it up. The Spirit did not come because the apostles did hocus-pocus with their hands. He came because God is awesome and kind and gracious and loving. He does that freely. You don't buy that. You don't manipulate that. This is what Peter is saying. Simon, you are a master manipulator and now you're trying to manipulate God and grace and spirit? That is not how this works. And then Peter does what every good gospel preacher, every good father, mother, friend does. He drives to the heart and he says these words. Look, man, you have neither part nor lot That's like saying you have none of it. You're a thousand miles away. You're on the opposite side of the planet from this matter of God, grace, gospel, spirit. For your heart, it's not right before God. And then he calls them to action. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, I love that part. See that? There's no manipulating God. have no idea what God will do. He's free. But plead with him that he might be merciful to you so that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What's Peter's focus in these words? They're always the focus of the gospel. Your heart. Your heart. Why are you looking at the finger that's pointing? Why are you looking at the external signs? Why are you focused on their hands? Why are you thinking about your billboard? The gospel is about your heart. This is intense. He's saying this to a man who professed Christ and was baptized in front of the whole congregation. And how does Simon respond? Last verse. You're so hoping that Simon's going to get it now, right? Please tell me this verse seals the deal and we see that he's thoroughly converted. We're not sure. We're not sure. People fight about this, but here's how he answers. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I don't know. I don't know. Those are not very encouraging words if you are looking for the genuineness of Simon's faith and conversion here, right? Right? It feels like he is still just self-interested. Do you feel that in this verse? Oh man, please don't let those consequences happen to me. You have some kind of direct magical line to the divine one. Pray the words. You know the right words and, and get me out of this. This is not what a Christian who's thoroughly converted sounds like. A Christian throws himself directly upon the mercy of God. A Christian just knows that Jesus is alive and real and personal and our mediator, and we can fly to him and plead for mercy. We don't need some kind of intermediary to get to Christ. Simon is missing the heart of the gospel, even in this response. Okay, so what's the big idea? True gospel faith. That's what I'm going for with you and with me. True gospel faith must be rooted in something more than self-interest. If all we've got is Simon faith, God and church and gospel As a way of advancing my agenda, as a means to furthering my ends, we don't have true gospel faith. We don't have it. Okay, let's bring this home here in the life of our church. We need to do this with scripture, right? So not just there and them and him, but us. For Simon, it was this magical power and the fame that attended it that was his thing And so he tried to use the gospel to further those self-interested ends. What about us? So if I was just preaching to myself or to people called to pastoral ministry, we would spend some time in here. And then we would fall on our face before God and plead with him to not let this be us. Because it is so easy to approach this work like it's magic, like it's magic. I come to Jesus and I say, hey, if I say the right words and if I glad hand the right people and if I choose the right leaders, get the right space, smile for the camera, the church will grow and my fame and my checking account and my comforts will grow. That is epidemic in church history, in the American church right now, gospel as a means to my agenda and career and self-interest. This doesn't happen much in Massachusetts, but there are a lot of places where being the pastor is living the dream. Parking space like right outside the front door of the church, great exalted reputation and privilege in the community, half-price membership at the Y, like 10 conferences a year. They all happen to be in the southern parts during the winter time. Monday's off, golfing on Fridays. I could keep going down that list. There are ministers who have no part or lot in the gospel because they're doing it out of self-interest. They thought that they could study their way, work their way, smile their way, pay their way into ministry. And then that would be the place where then the gospel benefits would come to them. Simony is actually the English word for doing that from this story. Okay, if you ever see any of that in my life, in the life of an elder, a deacon, or a deaconess in the life of this church, you are free to go Peter on us and to plead with us to stop confessing and preaching Christ from self-interest. I think that's good and fair application. But there are other ways that this goes down right in the life of a church. So I'm going to give you a few. I'm kind of leading you on to think of your own life as I do these. These are just ones that have broken my heart and I've seen. So I'm just going to talk brief on on all of them. So here's the, the first one that comes to mind the gospel as a means to a happy marriage. Multiple times in the life of our church, we'll see people who are on the front end of getting married, and all of a sudden, God and gospel and church and Jesus becomes very central to the rhythms of their life. And they're in church and they're in classes and they're getting baptized. But there's a danger there. That could be completely done out of self-interest. Do you feel that? I want a great wedding. I definitely want this guy, Matt, to preach at my wedding. I like the way that he talks. I want this marriage to work. I love this person. God's like some kind of magic genie in the bottle, right? If I involve him, then he's going to bless this marriage. I am plugging into gospel for self-interested, ends. What percentage of those people are still in the life of our church chasing Jesus hard? Now, I'll take anybody who's about to get married to say, can you talk to me about gospel things? Let's do it. God will use any means toward his good ends. But I could run down names of people that I've cried for who were coming to Jesus just because they wanted this thing to go well. And he was a part of their life in that season, and like a year into it, yeah, I'm on to other means and ends. Do you feel that? What would Peter have said to them? Okay, we've seen this one. The gospel is a means to fixing my kids. So we have had people come connect in the life of our church because they realized, I'm a horrible parent. (laughs) and My kid is screwed up, and I want my kid to get better. And I'd like to feel a little better about myself, too, if possible. And all the other magic tricks that I've tried in the self-help books that I've tried didn't work. Maybe God can get me there. Let me see what this Jesus thing has to offer. We have had fathers, mothers come in broken situations, and we've loved them, and we've gospeled them, and we've begged with God to turn their hearts to his all-sufficiency as they see their inability But multiple times, that confession of faith, there's been baptisms, it was just about getting my reputation as a parent together and getting my kid off of drugs or whatever else. What happens about two years later when life just kind of settles down in the family? They're gone. Jesus wasn't at the center of that thing. They weren't blown away by the glory and the grace and the beauty and the gospel of God. It was that magic trick as a means to advancing these ends. Okay, one more that we see a lot. The gospel is a means to community or me having friends. All the time, people will connect with us because they're lonely and they come find the most beautiful, loving, happy, gospelish community that they've ever seen before. And they so bad want friendship and community that they will confess Christ and they will get baptized and they'll do whatever it takes as a means to not being lonely anymore. If their faith stops right there and their connection to God is about Him and His people meeting their felt needs, that's not gospel. That's not gospel. Now, what we long for is that this community would be so magnetic and so loving and so distinct and so holy that in those friendships, they would be driven to the source of why this community is that way. But we have seen people over and over again think they're good with God, but they're just using God and his grace in others to meet their needs and their self-interest. There's no life there. Peter would never let you stay there. He would say, you got to take this step to Jesus. And then you will see why these other things exist. If Jesus Christ becomes the center and he is the interest, the most fascinating and wonderful thing is what? Happy marriage flows from there. Not, not a perfect marriage with no bumps. But God's grace is then all over your marriage. You come to Jesus with all of your heart and all of your interest and you throw all self aside and you watch him bless your family and your parenthood. You come to Jesus for who he is and what he has done and then you find yourself able to not only take community but to give community. Anything less than that and your heart isn't there yet because you are still at the center. How do you know if you've been thoroughly converted? Your heart races for Christ himself. You don't ever pray prayers anymore of can I just avoid hell? I have to have heaven. Can things just go right for me? Actually, I don't care how they go. Give me Christ. That's the heart that has come To the Savior. Simon never got there. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. The point is for us to ask Have I gotten there? How much of my coming to church and reading my Bible and being a part of this thing is from self interest? How much is just because I've been blown away that God has loved me in Christ and forgiven my sins and I'm all in on Him and I'm thoroughly converted? And now, as he blesses me, I can receive those with Christ where he is at. It is all the difference. I don't ever want to be a part of a church community where it's each man and woman for themselves and is everything and all the buttons being pushed to meet what I wanted. I want a bunch of people who have forgotten about themselves and are all in on Jesus and his gospel. And that is where the life will flow from. If you're unsure about your faith, if you have doubts about whether you really believe or you don't, this truth is not supposed to crush you. It's supposed to drive you to Jesus. It's supposed to teach your heart to say, Cruz, you don't got to pray for me. I am encouraged to go right to the Father and the Son and the Spirit who loved me. And ask that God would thoroughly convert your heart. That's a prayer that he will always answer. If you are here and you know that every bit about you being here is really just about you, then just do what Peter said. Turn from that. Repent of that. And throw yourselves upon the mercies of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so often and so quickly moved towards you, not because of the gospel itself, but because of what we can get from it. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive me of that in all of its forms in my life? Would you forgive us of that? Would you have Seven Mile Road in Melrose be so on fire for the person of Jesus Christ? And so forgetful of themselves that the Spirit would actually move beautifully in this time, in this space, and that our joy would be where it needs to be. We want part, we want lot in this matter of the gospel. I pray that you would get our hearts there. Don't miss us. Amen.